You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of where the heck I've been since October. So, for those of you who want the long story short up front, basically, I have been finalizing a house purchase and organizing a move. In terms of the podcast going forward, I'm back to being a one woman team, so my current plan is to release one episode per month on the main feed until we're settled in and I reassess things to see if I can up my workload again. If you don't want the full story, you can skip ahead now, two minutes, and you can get right to the story. For those who want the harrowing tale of house buying, listen on. Firstly, I want to say that we know how lucky we are that we're in a position to purchase a house right now. It is incredibly difficult, and honestly, it has been for a long time, so we're very thankful that we've been able to do this. It shouldn't be so hard, and housing is a right that we shouldn't have to fight for, but here we are. It's been a 10-year journey for us that's involved losing our rented place, moving in with family, and then relocating to a totally new county. So for those still listening, you'll have to indulge me. Last September, we started what turned into the process of closing the sale. We had to rush things along because if we didn't, we would have had to get new life insurance policy offers. And that had been a whole saga in itself the year before. So we got keys in mid-October, but as you may or may not know, new houses aren't always sold in walk-in condition, so we had to buy flooring, tiles, find a painter and find a plumber, and then try and schedule all those people as soon as possible, but without interfering with one another. As it stands now, we're about to hit four months of owning the house, but we're still waiting to have a fully finished bathroom. So we're slowly packing and still basically in the process of moving. With all that going on, my head has just not been in the game for the last number of months. I decided that in order to get things done with the house, I needed to give myself a pass to drop the ball on the podcast. And as I said at the top, I'm going to aim for one episode a month for the foreseeable. I need to balance working with getting settled into the house when we finally actually do move. So hopefully you'll bear with me while I get back on my feet and try to keep burnout and overwhelm at bay. And so that's where I've been for four months, not moving. We're about to. So let's get to it. You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Julie Tennant. Wednesday, August 9th, 2000, Billy and Eilish Tennant contacted the RUC in Ballymena to report their daughter, Julie, missing. 21-year-old Julie left the family home on Mount Street four days before and hadn't been seen or heard from since. She was carrying very little cash and had left her vital medication behind, causing alarm bells to ring for her family. Julie's parents had spent the last few days looking for her, and making their own inquiries around the town, but their searches turned up nothing. Julie was particularly vulnerable, as she had just been released from an inpatient drug rehabilitation hospital in Antrim, and it was very out of character for her to vanish without a trace or drop out of contact. Police issued an appeal for Julie in the local media with Sergeant Bob Fair from Ballymena RUC station saying, quote, She was last seen by her family at her home around 12.15am on Saturday, August 5th, and could have left there any time between then and 7am. 
Julie was suffering from depression and had no medication with her. We have checked all possible addresses and made extensive inquiries so far, but there has been no trace of her. Adding to the concern for Julie was the fact that another young woman had vanished in the nearby city of Belfast the previous month. Maria McConnell, who also suffered from severe depression, disappeared after a rare night out in the city. Tragically, her body was found two weeks later in an unoccupied house in the University District of Belfast. She had been brutally murdered. A suspect had been arrested and charged with Maria's murder prior to Julie's disappearance, and although the cases were unrelated, the parallels between both women were striking. Because of this, Sergeant Fair said that finding Julie was now a matter of urgency and he asked for anyone with any information that could help the police with their inquiries to get in touch. As a result of this appeal, a witness came forward to say that he had been with a group of friends in a Chinese takeaway in Ballymena just after 2am on August 5th when Julie Tennant, who was known to them, approached. She spoke to one of the men asking if he could get her a syringe and as she did, another man in the group had stuck his head out of the door of the takeaway and told her that he could get her one at his house on Warden Street. The witness told police that the man's name was Adrian Hayes. Detectives quickly found the 26-year-old Hayes and spoke to him, but he claimed that he had left Julie with the other men and gone home alone with his Chinese food. However, when investigators subsequently spoke to Hayes' next-door neighbours, they learned that sounds of a woman crying loudly were heard coming from his house at around a quarter past two in the early hours of the morning of August 5th. Based on this information, officers decided to search his flat, and upon entry, they saw blood spattered up along the wall in the hallway. The scene was sealed off for technical examination, and an RUC spokesman gave a statement to the media, saying that Julie was believed to have been in the home prior to her disappearance. Writing for the Belfast Telegraph, journalist Martin Breen also reported that a number of derelict buildings were expected to be examined and that a search of the River Braid was ongoing. Upon realisation that his home was being examined, Adrian Hayes fled and along with searching for Julie, officers now faced the added challenge of trying to track down their main suspect. Two and a half weeks after Julie vanished, there was a breakthrough in the case when Hayes's uncle, Andrew Harkin, who lived in the UK, contacted police in Dover. Harkin told officers that his nephew turned up on his doorstep earlier that day and confessed to killing a woman before burying her body in a shallow grave near Brockshane in Antrim. Harkin had tried to talk Hayes into turning himself over to the police in Kent, but he'd refused. Hayes then left Harkin's house, claiming that he was returning to Ballymena to hand himself over to the police there instead. Harkin didn't believe him and as his nephew sped off, he made note of the registration of his Land Rover, which he gave to the police. The vehicle was traced in the locality and following a short car chase, Hayes was apprehended and arrested before being returned to Northern Ireland and handed over to the RUC. Adrian Hayes was born in Ballymena on October 3rd, 1973. Growing up, he was the second youngest of six siblings, and after being bullied as a young child, Hayes started to rebel in his early teens. His propensity for fighting earned him a reputation as a quote-unquote hard man, and after leaving school, this petty violence evolved into more serious criminality, such as stealing and burglary. At the age of 18, he was given his first custodial sentence, 
when he was sent to Rathgale Training School, which was a young offenders institution. However, despite being sentenced to three years, Hayes ultimately served just 31 days after an appeal was granted. At the age of 19, Hayes travelled to Holland, where he became involved in drugs, and when he returned to Brockshane, he started dealing. Over the next few years, he accrued a string of convictions for common assault, theft and burglary. In 1999, he began a relationship with his future wife, Fiona, and less than a year later, in April 2000, the pair married. However, by this time, Hayes was drinking heavily and taking his pent-up anger out on Fiona, and shortly after their wedding, he beat her in a frenzied attack that resulted in her requiring hospitalisation. Soon after this assault, Fiona discovered that she was pregnant and the couple became estranged. Just four months later, Julie Tennant went missing and Hayes was the last person to have seen her. Detectives interviewed Hayes, but he denied having anything to do with Julie's disappearance, despite being told that her blood was found in his flat. When officers told him that his neighbours heard a girl sobbing through the walls on the night that Julie went missing, he maintained his innocence, denying any knowledge of it. He was held in custody as the search for Julie turned to the nearby village of Brockshane, where Adrian Hayes was originally from. A team of 12 officers began combing the fields along the Tullymore Road on the outskirts of the village, and an army helicopter flew overhead in a bid to identify any areas of recently disturbed ground. Hayes was interviewed for a second time on August 24th, and during the 23-minute interrogation, he confessed to attacking Julie, claiming that he never meant to kill her. He told detectives that he tricked Julie into going home with him under the pretense of getting her a needle. He said he did this because he was lonely and wanted someone to talk to. The pair argued when she realised that he didn't have a needle, and he started punching her repeatedly with his fists. In a prolonged attack, Hayes beat the young woman for 20 minutes while she remained conscious. He said, quote, Her moaning started to do my head in, and then told the officers that he had superglued Julie's lips together to quieten her. He apologised for what he had done, telling detectives that he was very sorry for her family. Hayes agreed to show investigators where he buried Julie's body and they loaded him into a squad car before driving to the Whitehall estate on the outskirts of Brockshane. There, at the edge of a winding, tree-lined laneway near the Tullymore Road, Julie's remains were found in a shallow grave. Her body was wrapped in a white bedsheet and black plastic sheeting, which was held in place by masking tape. The area, which was a heritage site normally open to the public, was sealed off immediately and a technical team was drafted in to examine the site for evidence. Hayes was taken back to Ballymena RUC station where he was charged with Julie's murder. Meanwhile, Julie's body was removed from the scene for a full post-mortem examination by Deputy State Pathologist Dr Alistair Bentley. He began by removing the materials enveloping her body. Beneath the bedsheet and plastic wrapping, Julie was naked from the waist down. Her underwear had been cut in two and placed across her chest, along with some other items of clothing. Julie's legs were wrapped in red electrical cable, and white sheets of fabric had been torn into strips and knotted together, before being wrapped around her upper body and neck. A green plastic bag was also tied around her neck by the handles, and a rope had been wound around Julie's wrists, waist and ankles.
During the examination, the pathologist noted the presence of superglue in Julie's hair and mouth, and extensive bruising covered her cheeks, right eye and scalp area. A C-shaped fracture was discovered on her right temple, while the young woman's arms, legs, torso and back also displayed patches of bruising. Julie's nasal bones had been fractured, and a diagonal wound was noted between the corner of her left eye and nose. Toxicology reports showed traces of alcohol, diazepam and temazepam in her system, but Dr Bentley determined that the levels were too low to have contributed in any way to Julie's death. Unfortunately, given the young woman's body had lain in a shallow grave for more than two weeks in the August heat, her remains were extensively decomposed, and as a result, Dr Bentley could not determine the cause of death with any certainty. However, he concluded that it was probable that Julie's airways had been restricted due to the combination of her lips being superglued, along with the seepage of blood from her shattered nose into her nasal passage. This meant that suffocation was highly likely. The Tennant family were devastated by the loss of Julie. Over the three weeks that Julie was missing, her parents and five sisters had endured the torment of not knowing what had happened to her, and even though the chance of her being found alive waned with each passing day, they still held out hope. That hope was now dashed, and they struggled to come to terms with the violent manner in which their beloved Julie had died. Our family would never have dreamed this would come to our door, said her shattered mother Eilish. We will never be the same without Julie. Up until that point, the tenant home had been a loving and happy one. Growing up, Julie was described as a bright and bubbly girl who did well in school and who had the whole world at her feet. She was particularly close with her youngest sister, Caroline, who was just seven years old when she was killed. Her parents remembered her as a normal young woman who was always smiling and never bore any grudges, and although she'd experienced some issues with heroin in recent times, she was working on it and making plans for her future. Tragically, Julie's encounter with Adrian Hayes outside the Chinese takeaway occurred just six hours after her release from the drug rehabilitation unit in Antrim. Three weeks after she was killed, Julie Tennant was laid to rest. Hundreds of mourners followed the cortege on foot as it carried her from the family home on Mount Street to All Saints Church. Canon Sean Connolly told the mourners about the quote, bright girl who did well in her studies and was brought up in a caring home by kind and loving parents. He continued, quote, on occasions like this, we all want to ask the question why. Evil comes in many guises and we have to rely on our faith to counter it. Pupils from Garan Tower, where Julie had been a student, formed a guard of honour, flanking her coffin as it was led from the church for her burial at the nearby Crebley Cemetery. The trial of Adrian Hayes opened on January 28, 2002, at Antrim Crown Court, sitting in Coleraine. He pleaded not guilty to the murder of Julie Tennant. The proceedings were covered extensively by reporters from the Belfast Telegraph and the Belfast Newsletter. In his opening statement for the prosecution, Queen's counsel Mr Gordon Kerr told the jury that Julie was violently assaulted by Hayes in the hallway of his flat at Warden Street in Ballymena in the early hours of August 5th, 2000. 
Mr. Kerr said that Hayes had lured the vulnerable young woman to his home under the false pretense of getting a needle just hours after her release from a drug rehab facility. He told them that they would hear, in Hayes's own words from his police interviews, how Julie had tried to leave the flat when she realised that he could not get her what she wanted. Hayes had responded by following her into the hall and punching her in the face, and after she fell to the ground, he beat her with both fists in a vicious and prolonged attack that lasted 20 minutes. Relatives and friends of Julie's left the courtroom in tears as the QC described how Hayes had then admitted to pouring superglue into the young woman's mouth and clamping it shut so that he wouldn't have to listen to her moans. After sealing her mouth closed, Hayes claimed to have fallen asleep on the sofa, and when he awoke a short time later, Julie was dead. Mr. Kerr said that on finding Julie deceased, Hayes had removed the lower half of her clothing. He then wrapped her body in sheets and bin liners and put her remains in a shed, before going away for an overnight trip with his estranged wife. Upon his return, Hayes disposed of Julie Tennant's remains by burying her in a shallow grave in an isolated area, where she lay for almost two weeks, while her family searched frantically for her. Mr. Kerr concluded his opening speech by telling the jury that they would hear from Deputy State Pathologist Dr. Alistair Bentley how the gluing and multi-fractures to Julie's nose would have resulted in the obstruction of her airways and that her death would have occurred in a matter of minutes. On day two of the proceedings, neighbours of Adrian Hayes gave evidence about what they saw and heard on the night that Julie died. Lindsay Jane Kerr, who lived next door to Hayes in Warden Street, recalled how she was awoken at a quarter past two in the morning by what she initially thought was the, quote, wailing of a dog. Miss Kerr sobbed as she told the jury that she soon realised it was a girl crying and that she could also hear a man shouting and there were sounds of someone going up and down the stairs. The witness said that she lay in bed for around five minutes listening to the sounds before getting up to investigate where the noise was coming from. She looked out her first floor bedroom window into the garden next door and could see that the light was on in both the bathroom and kitchen of Adrian Hayes' flat. Ms. Kerr also saw that the light was on in a shed at the back of Hayes' garden. She couldn't see what or who was causing the noise, but the racket was ongoing, so she went downstairs where she noticed that the sounds were getting louder. She explained, quote, it was like a girl crying, a scared cry, a wailing type of noise. This prompted her to go out into her own back garden to have a closer look through Hayes's windows, but she couldn't see anything discernible. Ms. Kerr told the court that she then went back inside and banged on the wall that separated her living room from Adrian Hayes's hallway. The witness continued, quote, the crying and wailing continued, and I thought I heard a front door opening. I got scared and I thought whoever was next door was coming to complain. Panicked, Lindsay ran upstairs, but came back down a few minutes later when nothing happened. It was then that she started hearing a scratching noise, which she likened to the sound of a carpet being scrubbed by a nail brush. Miss Kerr said that she finally went back upstairs to bed, and while there she could still hear the weeping sounds, except this time they were more muted. She banged on the wall again and this time a man's voice shouted back all right in a loud and angry tone. Gary McVeigh, Lindsay Kerr's boyfriend at the time, also gave a similar account of the night in question. 
He told the court that he remembered being woken up by what sounded like muffled banging of someone who had come home drunk and was stumbling about. He said that he also heard the weeping and scrubbing noises. Mr. McVeigh felt at the time that something wasn't right and told the jury that he estimated these noises continued for around 20 minutes. Jason Davidson, who was part of the group that was with Hayes in the Chinese takeaway that night, also gave evidence. Davidson confirmed that he knew both Julie Tennant and Adrian Hayes and said that he met Julie outside the takeaway in the early hours of August 5th. Julie had asked him if he could get her a needle and, just as she did, Hayes stuck his head out through the door of the restaurant and told her that he had one in his flat. Jason Davidson said that the last time he saw Julie was as she walked down Suffolk Street in the company of Adrian Hayes. The next witness put on the stand was Hayes' uncle, Andrew Harkin. He told the prosecuting QC that when his nephew first showed up on his doorstep in Kent, he didn't recognise him. Mr Harkin described how Hayes looked worried and frightened and told him that he was, quote, in a bit of trouble and that he'd done something bad. The witness had pressed Hayes for more details and initially his nephew was reluctant to say much about it, but eventually Hayes told him what had happened. Mr Harkin recalled that the defendant had told him that he, quote, had a big argument with this girl and he'd given her a few slaps and she went and hit her head on the radiator. He said that Hayes also claimed to have, quote, left the girl lying for two or three days on a table and that her blood, quote, went into a bucket which he emptied down a drain. Harkin said that after his nephew confessed to the killing, he tried to persuade him to hand himself over to the local police in Kent, but Hayes refused and instead claimed that he was going back home to Ballymena to hand himself in there. Under cross from Queen's counsel James Gallagher for the defence, Andrew Harkin said that he had taken Hayes' vehicle registration plate and phoned Kent police as soon as his nephew drove off. He said he was going to hand himself in, Harkin said, but I didn't believe him. On the fourth day of the trial, Deputy State Pathologist Dr Alistair Bentley gave evidence of his autopsy findings. He said he had performed the post-mortem one day after the discovery of Julie Tennant's body in Brock Shane and described the way in which her remains were wrapped and tethered with cable and rope. Dr Bentley gave harrowing details as to the extent of the decomposition of Julie's body, telling the jury of nine men and three women how the advanced decay meant that the cause of death could not be ascertained. However, he said, there was evidence that Julie was beaten with a, quote, considerable amount of force before her lips were superglued together. The pathologist recounted the litany of injuries the young woman had suffered, saying that the significant patches of bruising were consistent with a beating. He told the court that the only fractures on Julie's body were to her nose and temple, and he said that the slit wound between Julie's left eye and nose was likely caused by a narrow weapon, such as the blade of a knife. On questioning from Queen's counsel Jordan Kerr, the pathologist supported the prosecution's contention that Julie had died from suffocation caused by her lips being sealed while blood from her nose obstructed her nasal passage. However, under cross from James Gallagher defending, he accepted that he couldn't be certain as to the actual cause of death. He also admitted that despite the presence of superglue in Julie's mouth, he could not say with certainty that Hayes was, quote, actually successful in supergluing the lips or that the lips were sealed. Pressed by the QC, Dr Bentley accepted that it would be difficult to superglue the lips of someone who was struggling. Mr Gallagher put it to him that the fracture to Julie's temple 
could have been caused by her striking her head on something as she fell, and because of this, she may have suffered brain damage that resulted in her death. The pathologist said that this couldn't be ruled out entirely, but in a case like that, he would have expected to see blood clots in the brain during post-mortem, and in this instance, there were none present. Following the defence's cross-examination, Mr. Kerr, prosecuting, questioned Dr. Bentley further. He asked the pathologist if there was anything inconsistent with his findings that Julie died from suffocation, to which Dr. Bentley replied that there was not. The following day, Hayes's police interview tapes were played in the court for the jury. As the recordings echoed around the courtroom, Hayes sat in the dock weeping. In the initial interview, Hayes could be heard maintaining his innocence, telling officers that he returned home alone in the early hours of August 5th and had eaten his Chinese food before phoning his estranged wife and going to bed. During a second interview, Hayes is heard confessing to the detectives, telling him that he, quote, went blank and, quote, saw red after an argument about heroin use. Julie got up to leave, but Hayes said he followed her and punched her in the face. He claimed that Julie hit her head on the hall stairs as she fell backwards and she started shouting insults at him. It was then that Hayes lost control and began punching Julie with both fists, continuing the attack for 20 minutes. Julie moaned in agony as she lay on the ground. Hayes had stated, quote, It started to do my head in, and then went on to explain how he had glued her lips together to keep her quiet before sitting down to watch television. Hayes claimed that he then fell asleep before waking with a jump 20 minutes later. By this time, Julie was no longer making noise. He told the officers, quote, I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear moaning and groaning. I reached down and she was getting cold. She had no pulse and I didn't know what to do. So I wrapped her up in sheets and tied her with a rope and put bags over her head to stop the blood. Then he said he burnt her trainers and handbag and put Julie's body in the shed in the back of his garden for two days. On the Sunday night, he moved her remains to Brock Shane and put her in a shallow grave. Later in the interview, detectives asked him again about the superglue and he told them that Julie was conscious when he glued her lips together. He believed that she knew what he was doing and claimed that she didn't resist as he did it. When asked if he intended to have sex with her, Hayes said that he didn't and that he just wanted someone to talk to. He denied knowing the potential consequences of sealing her mouth shut and claimed he didn't realise that it could restrict her breathing. The interview ended with Hayes apologising for his actions. He said, quote, I did not mean for that to happen to her at all. On February 4th, a week into the trial, Adrian Hayes took to the stand in his own defence. Proceedings had to be halted a number of times during his evidence because he repeatedly broke down as he gave his version of events. He told the court that he had taken to drinking heavily due to depression and that he was finishing up a night out with friends when they met Julie Tennant at the takeaway. Hayes claimed that he initially thought that Julie went off with the other men. He told the court that he made his way home alone, only to discover that Julie had followed him when he arrived at Warden Street. They went inside together, but began to argue, and Julie went to leave. Hayes said that he followed her into the hallway, and as he did so, he alleged that he thought she was going to hit him, so he punched her in the face before she got the chance. According to him, Julie then got back up and started hitting him, so he hit her again, and this time, as she fell, she hit the back of her head on the stairs. 
Hayes told the court that he tried to lift her back up, but as he did so, she began hitting him again, and he lost control, attacking her with both fists. By the end of the assault, Julie's moans were getting to him, so he'd fetched the tube of superglue from the other room. He recalled what happened next, saying, quote, I lifted the glue and put it on her lips, then went back into the living room and lay on the sofa. I could still hear Julie crying. I went to sleep, and when I got up, she was dead. After finding Julie dead, Hayes said that he was torn between feelings of suicide and wanting to confess. Despite these alleged feelings, he found his pregnant, estranged wife, leaving a message on her answering machine during which he told her that he loved her. Just hours after Hayes killed Julie, the couple left for a night away, travelling to the Mourne Mountains in County Down. All the while, Julie's body lay in his shed, wrapped in bin bags and sheets. The pair visited Castlewell and Forest Park and other beauty spots during their stay. Hayes alleged that he wanted to confess to his wife, but that he, quote, couldn't bring himself to tell her. At one stage, he said that he contemplated crashing the car into a wall to commit suicide, but that he didn't have the heart to kill his wife and their unborn child. He described taking Julie's remains to Brock Shane on his return and said that he cried as he buried her in the shallow grave. He claimed that the next few weeks were a living hell for him. Hayes's cross-examination by Richard Weir, QC, began the following day. When challenged on his initial lies during his first police interview, Hayes said that he lied out of, quote, fear, shock and panic. Mr. Weir countered, asking the defendant how he was able to take his wife away just hours after killing Julie, given his state of alleged shock. Hayes insisted that he had never intended to harm Julie, but that he simply wanted her to leave his house following drug use. However, this contradicted the toxicology reports, which only found prescription sedatives and alcohol in Julie's system. Hayes spoke again about the weeks following the killing, insisting that he wanted to tell the truth, but that his mind wouldn't let him, that he, quote, lived in hope that the nightmare wasn't a reality. Mr. Weir offered a simpler explanation, suggesting that Hayes simply didn't want to get caught. Hayes responded, telling the QC, quote, I lied, yes, but not to evade detection. It caused so much shock it was easier to lie than tell the truth. When pressed on the version of events he had given in court the previous day, Hayes maintained that he had only hit Julie in the face about ten times, but, quote, not at full force. He said he had been very drunk and had staggered to the living room to fetch the glue. Hayes told the prosecuting counsel that the whole incident had lasted only two or three minutes, and that by the end, Julie was still conscious. However, this was refuted by Mr. Weir, who put it to Hayes that Julie Tennant had been beaten unconscious by the end of the assault. The QC pointed out that if Julie had been conscious when Hayes finished hitting her, she surely would have taken her chance to escape when he went to get the superglue. At this point, Adrian Hayes refused to answer any further questions on the stand, claiming that the prosecution was twisting his evidence and taking his words out of context. However, following an adjournment of 45 minutes, he returned to the dock to resume his cross-examination. Richard Weir asked him if he had stabbed Julie Tennant in the nose, causing the apparent knife wound, but Hayes denied this. He recounted how, in the aftermath of Julie's death, he was still drunk, and all rational thought was gone as he'd gathered up items to wrap and dispose of her body.
The day after Hayes took to the stand in his own defense, final submissions were heard, with Prosecutor Richard Weir telling the jury that the killing of Julie and disposal of her body was, quote, cold and calculated. He claimed that Hayes had waylaid Julie to his home, killed her in cold anger and then packaged her body for efficient disposal in a cool and calm manner. Recounting Hayes' effort to evade capture, Weir said that the accused only made scant admissions when he realised that police were closing in on him, and even now he still hadn't revealed the whole truth about what he had done to Julie Tennant. He concluded his address by telling the jury that the evidence in the case could only point to murder, and that, quote, all the smoke and mirrors in the world would not detract from this hard core of hard evidence. In Hayes's defence, James Gallagher QC described Julie's death as an awful event. He said that Hayes carried out an unlawful assault and, as a result, Julie died. Mr Gallagher agreed that the wrapping and storing of Julie's body was a, quote, dreadful thing, gruesome and almost spine-chilling, but he warned the jury that while listening to the case may have been awful, it did not give them enough information to determine Hayes' state of mind. He said that despite what was heard, and despite Hayes' own confession, the case was not necessarily a simple one in terms of what they might convict him of. The QC pointed out that there were a number of different verdicts that they could reach depending on what they determined Julie's cause of death to be, and what they believed Hayes' intention was at the time. James Gallagher reminded them that no matter what verdict they came to, Adrian Hayes would not walk out of the court a free man. With that, the jury retired to deliberate. Just over an hour later, they returned to the courtroom to deliver their verdict, finding Adrian Hayes guilty of murder. Hayes stood emotionless as the unanimous verdict was read out, while his estranged wife Fiona wept openly. Julie Tennant's parents, said they were glad to have had justice for Julie, and they hoped that their family could now turn the page of a very dark chapter. Julie's mother told the press, quote, No sentence will bring Julie back to us, but we have seen justice done today. Julie will live on through us, and we will live for Julie. She was a dear, dear daughter, and we miss her beyond words. Eilish then went on to thank police and the witnesses who testified, for helping to bring Adrian Hayes to justice. She continued, quote, Hayes is an evil man who took a totally healthy young girl's life away from her. Our family would have never dreamed this would come to our door. We will never be the same without Julie. However, the Tennant family's sense that justice had been done was short-lived, when Hayes was given a life sentence with a minimum term of 17 years in prison the following month. Trial judge Mr Justice Ronald Weatherup said at sentencing that although Hayes showed no remorse for what he had done, he could not be satisfied that the brutal attack was pre-planned. Following the hearing, Julie's father Billy said, quote, Life should mean life. We're disappointed he got 17. He'll be out in 15 years' time. Julie's younger sister will be 21, the same age as Julie when she died, when Hayes becomes eligible for release. The sentence came despite the Tennant family presenting a letter to the court expressing deep concerns about the risk Hayes would pose if he was ever released. Billy lamented, quote, Something is wrong with the legal system. Hayes is a nothing. There are no words to describe him. He ruined our lives. The Tennant family were also critical of the fact that Hayes had not been jailed in the past 
for his other crimes. In the months leading up to Julie's murder, he had been before the courts a number of times on charges of disorderly behaviour and carrying a concealed weapon. He received a number of suspended sentences and when he killed Julie, Hayes was still on probation for these offences. More evidence of Hayes' propensity for violence towards women emerged when a woman named Laura Thompson came forward to say that she had a sinister encounter with Hayes in the months preceding Julie's murder. Hayes had taken a shine to Laura, who worked as a waitress in a bar that he frequented in his home village. Laura's colleagues at the bar started to notice that Hayes only ever came in when Laura was working. He would watch her every move and constantly tried to engage her in flirting. When he sent her flowers with a note asking her out, Laura politely declined, but Hayes was undeterred by her refusal continuing to turn up at the bar. A number of weeks later, Laura encountered Hayes at a house party. She and her friends had been looking for a lift and Hayes had told them that his mother worked as a taxi driver on the side and would take them home. They went back to his parents' house with him, but on arrival, Hayes started taking his clothes off and shouting and swearing at his mother to get out of bed. Laura's group made a quick exit from the house before the situation could escalate further, but a number of hours later, Hayes turned up on her doorstep. She recalled, quote, I suggested taking him back home as he said he had no money. I really wanted to get rid of him as fast as possible. Laura instantly regretted offering him a lift as Hayes seemed very agitated. They drove for about 200 metres when, without warning, Hayes pulled the handbrake up, bringing the car to a sudden stop. Laura fled to a neighbour's house and Hayes followed her, screaming abuse. He then turned back towards Laura's house, threatening to cut the throat of her newborn foal who was grazing in a paddock with its mother. Laura returned to her house to stop him and there she found a note written on her back door in Hayes' own blood which said, I will kill you. Police were called and after a struggle they managed to apprehend and arrest him. Knowing Hayes' dangerous nature, officers advised Laura to move from her home. However, due to her family's connection to the Hayes family and the fear of repercussions, the matter never went to court. Hayes began his jail term at HMP McGabry, but despite being incarcerated, he was never far from controversy. Ironically, his prisoner number was B666, and he initially boasted to fellow inmates that he was the devil's disciple. However, he soon went to the other extreme, claiming to have found God. In May of 2008, Hayes appeared in a BBC documentary on prison life, called Life Inside. During his lengthy interview for the programme, he eagerly portrayed himself as a born-again Christian. The Tennant family were horrified and they complained to the Northern Ireland Prison Service for allowing Hayes to be featured in the show, saying there would be a public outcry if the Yorkshire Ripper or the Soham Killer were allowed to give similar interviews. In a statement issued to the media, the family said, quote, We believe that the prison service has given Hayes a platform to promote himself as a reformed character and also to try and minimise the evil nature of his crime against our daughter, Julie. In 2009, Adrian Hayes launched a high court challenge over his Christian status and freedom to worship within prison. This came after he was denied private ecclesiastical visits in the prison chapel, which Hayes claimed would allow him the opportunity for prayer. He was also challenging the prison's refusal to allow him to change his religion from Presbyterian to Pentecostal. Legal counsel for the prison service argued that Hayes was trying to adopt a, quote, a la carte approach to religion within the jail. 
Hayes was later granted his wish, with Tony McLeanan, representing the prison service, commenting, quote, We hope it does deal with the issue, but my learned friend wants to test out the ecclesiastical plumbing to see if it works. The Tennant family were infuriated by the situation, branding it as another attention-seeking move by Hayes. Speaking to Gemma Murray of the Belfast Newsletter, Eilish Tennant said, quote, This is yet another publicity stunt by the convicted murderer of our daughter. It was only brought to our attention via the media. It seems to me that the convicted murderer has more human rights than the victim or the victim's family. In 2011, Hayes became romantically involved with a fellow Christian named Adele Best, who visited McGabry Prison on ecclesiastical missions with her jail ministry group. After a five-year courtship, the pair became engaged, but Adele ended the engagement 13 months later when The Sunday Life published an article revealing the nature of their relationship. By this time, Hayes was nearing the end of his minimum term of 17 years. As part of his reintegration plan, he was granted day-release privileges, which allowed him to leave the confines of the prison for one day each month. However, these were later revoked when he was caught trying to bring cannabis back to Magabry after one of these days out. Hayes claimed that he was acting under duress and said that his family were threatened with violence by a third party in the prison grounds, and because of that, he'd agreed to take the drugs into the prison. He was later charged in relation to the offence, but the case against him was ultimately dismissed when the prison service failed to serve CCTV footage of the incident to the court. In 2018, Hayes was transferred to the Burren House Open Prison, where he could come and go as and when he wanted. He was later released on a life licence, but just a few months after this, he was returned to McGabry when it was discovered that he had been looking for female companionship on Tinder. Along with this, he was said to have been writing his number on prayer cards and giving it to women at an evangelical church in Belfast. This was in breach of his strict early release rules, which required him to inform any prospective partner of his murder conviction before entering into a relationship with them. In October 2022, Adrian Hayes was returned once again to Burren House in anticipation of his release. He has since been spotted out and about in Belfast, and he is free to visit friends and attend work placements. Meanwhile, the Tennant family carry on without Julie, who never got the chance to experience life, grow older, or have a family of her own. Her mother Eilish said, quote, He has never apologised for Julie's murder. We just live day to day. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Patrons get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, nifty merch, and of course, my unending thanks and undying love. Special thanks this week goes out to Sarah Kutriba, Louise Donnelly, Kira Block, Marcella Fury, and Annette. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spearin, and additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, 
Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Magabri, 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 Magabri. Ugh.